Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com spoken today. Greetings and welcome to the 1994 summer break between prison and hell. This is Under Consultation, an episode-by-episode podcast guide through the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen, and I'm glad we missed the 15 weeks of Love Is All Around. Which does unfortunately mean we will never know what they're feeling in their fingers or their toes. I am Ash Versus. So this is a... Something we've not done before. Usually uh, we would just do the the summer months that we missed between series in the first bit of episode one of a new series. That's what we did in two and three. But if you've listened to episodes uh, one and of series two and three, they're long episodes, particularly series three one, because we also that was a Mortal Kombat one as well as a bloody long episode that. So we thought we would do this as, as a bonus episode instead, covering the summer months between series three and four. Not only because it will make episode four a shorter episode and it'll be easier for us to do and easier for you to listen to, but also because a load of stuff happens between series three and series four, not the least of which Dominic Diamond comes back. There's a buttload of stuff in the Games Master magazines, but also there were some big songs, there were some big movies, there were some big games, there were some big TV moments. So we thought we would just kind of do this collective episode where we can talk about all of those things. I didn't want us to shortchange anything because, yeah, a load of stuff happens. This is 1994. By the end of the year, we will have the PlayStation and the Saturn on the market. The 3DO is launching in the UK. And Project Reality is now the Nintendo Ultra 64. But more on all of that as we get into the episode. I don't remember 1994 being this chaotic, Luke. Maybe it's because I was experiencing it one month at a time, but uh, looking (laughs) at that period between the end of season three and the beginning of season four, man, a lot went down. 
it's just hit after hit after hit particularly when you're looking at like the uk box office it's like every week oh yeah that's a big movie oh yeah that's a big movie same with the songs as well granted 15 whole weeks of that is taken up by one song but it's a pretty big song like for for the year and when i was looking at all the albums that were released in 1994 they're in kind of this period here as well big stuff on tv it is just like a, a groundbreaking year for the 90s and i'm I'm glad that we're doing this as a separate episode it was your idea actually you texted me about it this morning being like how about we do this doing it as like episode zero and i was like oh bloody hell that's a good idea because that way we're not going to bog down and as you say shortchange anything when we do episode one i don't think i'd have suggested it to you if i didn't think it was a good idea my only note of regret is i wish i'd thought of it two three weeks ago rather than <laughs> on the day when we were like yeah today we're going to record starcade and then we'll start on episode one basically we've kind of got to wing the structure of this episode so thanks for bearing with us while we we kind of we, we bolt this one together out of bits and pieces So the way that we tend to do this is that, like, I'll read out a list of the movies that we missed that were at the top of the box office. We'll start with the movies first. And then what we'll do after that is we'll kind of, like, cherry pick out of any of the movies that really jumped out to us. So, like, here are the big hitters that we missed out on. Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, Naked Gun 33 and a Third, Police Academy 7, The Mission to Moscow, Shopping, Beverly Hills Cop 3, Maverick, The Flintstones, and True Lies. Bloody hell, like some of those we kind of have talked about on UCP Extra. I remember where we talked about we thought we dodged a bullet by not having to talk about Ace Ventura. I'm looking for Ray Finkel and a clean pair of shorts. A is for action. C is for crime fighter. E is for excitement. Yes, yes, yes! Now, there's a new way to spell hero. Don't kill me. Jim Carrey is Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. Rated PG-13. And then we realised that actually there was a similar joke and a similar problem in Naked Gun 33 and a third. Yeah, it's, it's in fact the exact same joke. And as uh, Lindsay Ellis pointed out in her excellent video essay that she released uh, very recently, actually just shortly after we did that episode, it's the only joke that they tend to do about uh, the trans community, particularly in the 90s. And it, it is not one that is, is held up well. There's still talks about rebooting Ace Ventura today, and I do actually think the character could be rebooted. Uh, Jim Carrey could probably even still play him, but I think there's a lot of humour and a lot of jokes that would just be quietly rug-swept and or redacted out of Ace Ventura history. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think some things should just be left in the past. But Luke, when you were listing off all those films, there is a film I cannot believe you missed out. Which one did I miss? Beethoven's second. He's big. Uh, those sounds coming from outside. He's back. He's Beethoven. And this time, he's bringing the kids. No, 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 no. They'll destroy our house and they'll drive me out of my mind. From Ivan Reichler. That's a lot of dogs. Rated PG starts Friday in theaters everywhere. Oh, well, yes, I did skip over Beethoven second because we also decided when we were talking about Ace Ventura and uh, Naked Gun 33 and a third that there's nothing to say about Beethoven second. Well, it's a film. It's a less problematic film than Naked Gun 33 and the third or Ace Ventura. There's that to say about it. It did also require a lot of dogs. Mm hmm. 
Yeah, like yeah. over a hundred. Yeah, it is. Um, I, I have definitely seen the first Beast Oven movie, but I don't, and I must have seen the second one. But I have very few memories. Like basically, it's just like you know, what is the plot line of, of Beethoven? It's a big dog, and then and, and and it's a big dog, and then there is a family that is all that owns the big dog, and then with Beethoven second, it's just like there is a the big dog is back, and there are other dogs now too. So you've seen the first? I'm pretty sure I've seen the first one. I'm, I've definitely seen it on TV at some point. I've probably seen the second. I must have done. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a child in 1994. Like I must have seen it at some point. Do you think you saw the third? No. In the same way that I don't think I've ever really seen the third Ace Ventura movie either. What about the fourth? Nope. Definitely haven't seen the fourth one. Fifth? No. Sixth? No. Seventh? No. Eighth? No. Oh, we've run out then. Yeah. Did you play the video game? <laughs> I didn't even know there was a video game. <laughs> oh yeah, no. This here we go. We've actually got something relevant to Games Master. There was Beethoven, the ultimate canine caper, which was a side-scrolling game, and there were versions developed for the Mega Drive and the Game Boy that were completed but never released. That was also released in 1994 to tie in with this sequel. It's another shonkily produced tie-in video game, Luke. Oh, I'm sure Jazz Rignall would have loved it. Oh, it's a platformer. It'd have been all over that. Like white on rice. The only other remarkably notable thing and kind of hilarious thing about Beethoven's second is it dethroned Schindler's List from the box office for a hot week, but then Schindler's List came back to the top of the box office for another two to three weeks. The kids can only have so much influence on the box office. I reckon if they'd actually pushed Beethoven second to the summer, they might have they might have done a bit better. If they'd kind of pitched it just towards the end of what Four Weddings and a Funeral did, because Four Weddings and a Funeral was at the top from the 19th of May through to the 21st of July. It was almost my birthday movie. Mm. Yeah, it's a big old film, that. There's a few uh, titles out there that, that really jump out to me, namely The Flintstones. Cue the music. Congo Uncork the bubbly. Because in just four days, the celebration begins. You did it, Fred, you made it! John Goodman, Rick Moranis, Elizabeth Perkins, and Rosie O'Donnell, the Flintstones. Had car trouble. Picked up a nail. Rated PG. Yabba dabba do it this Friday. Because it is a... I went to the pictures to see the Flintstones. I remember my mum and dad taking me to see it. There was one of the cereals. I think it was, it was definitely a Kellogg's one. It might have been Rice Krispies. Their like giveaway that they were doing at the time was like Flintstones trading cards. So you would get like scenes from the movie. I'm pretty sure it was in cereal anyway. But I definitely had some of the Flintstones trading cards. And it had like pictures of the film on it. And I remember being like obsessed with this because it's pictures from the film. And then I went to go and see the film as well. And I have got so much kind of admiration for the Flintstones movie, A, because of the practical sets uh, and this, that and the other, but just the sheer, like, willing this film into existence. Because this film went through so many scripts and so many rewrites and so many this and so many that. This was like remarkably a labor of love to get this movie up onto the big screen that is actually remarkable that it ever did like steven d'souza wrote a, a large portion of the scripts that got eventually turned down and it is a film that i think is actually not that bad i think that the performance i think like john goodman's great in it 
I think Rick Moranis is great in it. I think that the B-52s or the BC-52s as they're renamed are great in it. I do like a good pun. And what is the Flintstones but puns? Like that's, you know, they are literally just a, they are a vehicle for stone or rock based puns. And I think the film actually does capture a lot of what made the cartoon so great and put it up on screen. It's, you know, it's not a five star classic or anything, but I think it is a pretty decent film and it's way better than the sequel. Well, especially as the sequel is also technically a prequel. Well, exactly. Yeah. And it doesn't feature the fucking alien either. Now, I think this film is remarkably good particularly given the source material, because maybe a controversial take here, but the Flintstones cartoon is pretty crap and a rip-off. It's a 50s sitcom, but done as a cartoon. It's the Honeymooners. Yeah. I think that's that's what it was. It was essentially, let's do the Honeymooners, but with caveman jokes, and where instead of appliances, they just have slave animals. That's kind of where it's going for. It's a living. That's the joke. (laughs) That's the joke, yeah. It's like, you know. What are you? I'm the B-Day. It's a living. <laughs> Please kill me. Have that in every single script. <laughs> You're bound to get some fall up. But canned laughter and everything. Like the Flintstones is a show that it's not good, man. Like, and it hasn't held up at all. But like, you know, for the 1950s and the 60s and stuff, like it was, you know, it's, it's very revolutionary for its time. But when you talk about casting, up until that point, John Goodman was Dan in mm. Roseanne. Yeah. Although I did recently catch him um, in his role as a police officer getting killed in the film Chud. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's in there for a hot minute. He's kind of creepy towards a waitress and then he gets killed by a Chud. John Goodman, everyone. <laughs> but other people considered for the role of Fred Flintstone over its production period because it was optioned back in 1985. As I mean, and this was a long old production. John Candy. Makes sense. Jim Belushi. Makes sense. Dan Aykroyd. Makes sense. Bill Murray. Makes less sense. He he is, come on now, he is Barney. He is not Fred. I wouldn't say he's either of them, to be honest. <laughs> if he's one of the two, he's not fucking Fred. Chevy Chase. That makes sense. Really? I think Chevy Chase makes sense. Because Chevy Chase would have done the voice. I suppose. The other note I've got here is the last four actors, so uh, Belushi, Aykroyd, Murray and Chase were all considered too skinny and they thought that a fat suit would be inappropriate. Yeah. They were right. It would have been very inappropriate. John Goodman felt apparently that he was kind of sandbagged into the role because at a table read, Spielberg announced that, I'd like to say something before we start, I found my Fred Flintstone. And Goodman was not looking forward to doing this role, but said the experience was was kind of fun. I think he felt under a lot of pressure because it has been said that if he turned down the role, the film would not have gotten made because Spielberg was like, that's it. I've I found my Fred Flintstone. I want my Fred. As I said, this was a labor of love, like from Spielberg and, and the, the DreamWorks team uh, just to get this film made, because like this is a boomer generation remaking something that they loved when they were kids. And like, you know, when Spielberg said, like, I found my Fred Flintstone, it's him being like, I have got a vision for what this film is. And there was only one. I mean, I'm not directing it. But you need to have the right Fred. Because if you don't have the right Fred, this film doesn't work. Do you know what the first choice was for Barney? I don't actually. Danny DeVito. Uh, do, you know what, do you know why Danny DeVito is the first choice for everything? Because he's short. And because Barney is shorter than Fred, Danny DeVito is always going to be your first choice for that role. Rick Moranis was the perfect choice, though, because he legit 
particularly with the slightly wonky blonde dye job, he looks like Barney. He's got the mannerisms down. I've not watched this film probably since 93, 94. It's an easy watch. I may have caught a few bits of it, but I will revisit it at some point. Maybe when I start up these retro video nights, I'll get an ex-rental big box copy of the Flintstones and we'll screen it for an audience. It is, you know, it is, what, 90 minutes? It is a breeze to watch. And it is, I, I, I don't, I, I've seen it a fair number of times as outside of seeing it in the pictures in 94. I've seen it a fair number of times. And yeah, it is, it's a, it's a decent old movie. Also like Rick Moranis, a much better choice than um, Danny DeVito ever would have been. Poor old Danny DeVito. First choice to play Mario as well. Why? Because he's short and fat. Direct quote from the director. But like, he's a great Barney because he can do the voice much in the same way that like John Goodman does a very good Fred but he is still very much John Goodman. Rick Moranis is doing an impression of Barney. Oh, hey there, Fred. And that's what he does. And it's, he's very, very good at that. John Goodman locks out in that, really, his timber is naturally all, almost there. Exactly. So he's just going to be like, what do you want to do, Barn? And then Rick Moranis can come be like, well, I don't know, Fred. Do you want to go play bowling? And like, and that's it. That's, that's your Flintstones movie right there. Same with Rosie O'Donnell got the role of playing Betty because she can do the laugh. Because she can yeah. do the... <laughs> that's it. Brilliant. Cast her as Betty then. Mate, I'm going to make a Flintstone reboot and I'm just going to cast you in all the roles at this point. <laughs> How are you on Dino? Oh, I couldn't do a Dino. Oh, we will have to get Frank Welker in. <laughs> well, I've got to get Welker in. You've got to get Welker somehow. I remember when I was watching the Flintstones on VHS, this would have been the mid to late 90s, so maybe 96, 97, I was watching it at my nan's house. Dino was the CG character, right? And I remember saying to my cousin, if they can do the Flintstones, they can do Scooby-Doo. And then a few years later, and like the little did I know, they were trying to heavily do uh, Scooby Doo as well. Although James Gunn wanted to get his R-rated version of the film done, and the studios were like, "No, stop trying to make an R-rated Scooby Doo. Make a PG-13 one that we can sell to kids." I'd have rather seen the R-rated one personally. It'd have been so much more interesting. But the Flintstones got like mullered by the critics. Oh yeah, of course it did. They hated it. They thought it was juvenile shonkily made wonkily acted bad script didn't matter a jot 130 million dollars domestic another 210 million dollars internationally that's 340 million dollars worldwide more than seven times its 46 million dollar budget oh yeah my dad hated it when he took me to see it uh, I don't think my mum particularly enjoyed it either. I, I, I remember going to see this film so vividly. I literally remember the day of my dad coming home with KFC and thinking that was weird that my dad had brought KFC home from work. And the reason why is because we were going to the pictures. So we had to have something that we could eat quickly so that we could get in the car and drive into town so we could go to the, um, the Odeon in Reading to go and watch it. And like eating this KFC and thinking it was weird that we were having KFC for dinner and then my dad told me we were going to the cinema. And going to the cinema was the most exciting thing to do for nine-year-old Luke. And I lost my mind. And I was so, so excited to the point where my dad nearly didn't take me because I was too excited. <laughs> and it was like, I was essentially annoying him. I, I remember that so, so vividly. I mean, it was the most exciting thing in the world for nine-year-old Luke. I'd imagine it ranks pretty highly for 30-something Luke at this point. Yeah, pretty much. The other film that immediately leapt out to me that we otherwise didn't get to talk about from this time period is True Lies. True Lies is the number one movie in America, a gargantuan thrill machine. Honey, I'm home. The roller coaster ride of the decade. The movie event of the year. 
If you never see another movie in your life, see True Lies. Arnold Schwarzenegger has never been better, and Time Magazine says there's something for everybody. May I see your invitation, please? Here's my invitation. Arnold Schwarzenegger, True Lies, rated R. Now playing at theaters everywhere. James Cameron once again storming the box office. Oh, absolutely. But the cast, Arnie's in it, unsurprisingly, but he is really good in it. Yeah. Like, he actually gets to show some real acting range. Jamie Lee Curtis is stunning in it. She won a Golden Globe. So, so great. The Golden Globe, that's almost a real award. (laughs) Almost. Almost. Tom Arnold, Art Malik, Tia Carrera, Bill Paxton, Elijah Dushku as uh, Arnie and Jamie Lee Curtis's daughter, and Chucky Heston. Yeah. You goddamn dirty apes from my cold, dead hands. It's technically a remake. It's a remake of a French film. Well, yeah, they wanted to use that remake, they wanted to use that French film basis to be like, this is going to be our American version of James Bond. That's what James Cameron always wanted to do, was do a Bond movie. And Schwarzenegger kind of wanted to be a Bond-like character. They should have just optioned Man from Uncle. They already had it. Yeah. But True Lies, it was the first Lightstorm Entertainment project to be distributed by 20th Century Fox under the massive money deal he had, uh, James Cameron had with them. And it was also the first film to cost a hundred million dollars it's so so great like i mean talking about my uh my movie marathon uh mates we did a, a schwarzenegger marathon a few years back and we had like terminator 2 as our end points but there was part of me that was just like guys we should just push through and do true lies as well because i want to watch true lies now now that i've finished watching t2 I want to watch some more Jim Cameron. I want to watch some more Arnie. I want to watch True Lies. It's on my watch list at the moment. I was hoping I'd get to it before we reached this point in time, but um, just life got in the way. But I'm definitely due a rewatch of True Lies. Just a note on box office, 378 million worldwide. So it made back that 100 million investment quite comfortably. Yeah, it did, did very, very well. The only other movie I just wanted to quickly note from that list there is Shopping. Which was uh, Paul W.S. Anderson's debut movie, you know, and which I make reference to not just because he wrote the foreword for my book that I released. You you wrote a book? I, I did actually. Yeah, I once wrote one. You know, I think about seven people have got a copy of it. Eight. Yeah, <laughs> and I think you're included in the seven. But actually, shopping is one of the reasons why Anderson directed Mortal Kombat. It was like someone. It was uh, Larry Kasanoff saw shopping and was like. He's a guy that I would, I'm really interested in. I'd like to see him come in and give me his take on Mortal Kombat. It's not quite Mario Brothers and Killing Fields odd connection, but it is a bit odd. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's basically because like, because shopping did really well and there were some critics that really didn't like it because it was this sort of, you know, violent movie. That made some of the more indie magazines really like it. 
because it was something that the mainstream critics didn't like. So they really latched onto it. And I think it was that kind of like chat about it is really what put his name onto the map and made him like get meetings in America. And through that, he loved playing Mortal Kombat. He got into uh, chats with Kasanoff and and yeah, got the combat gig. And it all it all skyrocketed from there. And then he ended up working on Resident Evil. He meets his future wife, and uh, then they kind of made sexy home movies. Except they made it with a full Hollywood cast. And <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. It's not unusual for a husband wife duo to make uh, candid films. It's very unusual for them to get a box office return. But uh... oh, exactly, yeah. And you know, you got to give them credit as well. They basically finished doing Resident Evil and then sat back one day and was like, "Oh, I miss doing those Resident Evil movies." Can we just do it again? But this time we'll do it with a different Capcom franchise. It's like, yeah, that Monster Hunter franchise is available. Well, let's just, I've got a great relationship with Capcom. They love me because the Resident Evil movies made over a billion dollars. So I'll, I'll easily get that gig. Aren't you worried you might upset a rabid fan base? Eh, yeah. <laughs> I've come this far. <laughs> I did like I did eight Resident Evil movies without a jot of what the fans thought of them. <laughs> I've got my own fan base. Honestly, I've watched and enjoyed to some degree all of the Resident Evil movies, and the one I enjoyed the least is the one that stuck the closest to the video games, and that was Resident <laughs> Evil Two. It's the shittest one, and it's the one that Anderson didn't do. Yeah, it also feels the cheapest, but I I really enjoyed the the later resident evil movies particularly because resident evil itself at this point is reinventing itself over and over again much like final fantasy does i'm just amazed he hasn't like uh got had the the uh chutzpah to go after the street fighter license <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think it's probably because i think when i spoke to him he did say that he was not really into street fighter and i imagine that's probably why he's not done it he was more of a mortal kombat fan than he was a street fighter fan i like you i i like the resident evil franchise because they're their own movies. I think if you want them to be Resident Evil movies and you want them to be just like the games, you are going to be bitterly disappointed. But like Anderson never set out to make a Resident Evil movie that was like the games because it, as his argument has always been, you know, the idea was um, to do a prequel to the first video game so that we would use locations that the video game audience were familiar with, but we would use fresh characters. And I thought that was an important thing to do because it paid homage to the video game and, and it clearly would mean that the movie was made up of the DNA of the video game. But it told a different story with different characters, which meant that there would be an element of surprise for the video game audience because I've always felt the last thing anyone wants to see is really just a straight adaptation. Because yeah. unfortunately, then there's no twists and turns. You know, Wesker is the bad guy you know which characters are going to die. And I've always likened it to watching the first Alien. If, if somebody just told you the order that everyone is going to die in and that Sigourney Weaver is going to be the only survivor, it would ruin the movie for you. I mean, I remember watching that movie on complete tenderhooks and, and being shocked that Sigourney Weaver was the last survivor and, you know, being worried that she was going to die as well. I mean, it really was an engaging movie. And I thought, you know, for fans of the video game, if you just do a straight adaptation, then you just know every twist and turn of the narrative. And, and, you know, what is the enjoyment of watching that? Now, of course, you know, that meant that my kind of nuts were put on the roasting fire from some of the hardcore fans for kind of deviating too much. Anyway, enough of movies, particularly talking about movies that haven't actually been made yet. What about the songs, Luke? There were three big ones that we missed out on, obviously. Wet, 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 love is all around. Fifteen weeks could you imagine doing this podcast with 15 weeks of wet, wet, wet? I mean, we've had actually a lot of wet, wet, wet when we do an episode, uh, doing series one. 
for 15 weeks, three months worth of that song. I, I know. <laughs> I was getting night sweats thinking originally we might have to cover it for a couple of weeks because I got the uh, number one dates mixed up in my head. But but just no. I mean, Meatloaf at least was like, you know, a long song. So that was easy to cover multiple weeks. This song isn't even original. It's a cover of the Trogs. Yeah. The thing is, it's a perfectly fine song. Four Weddings and a Funeral. It's a great film. It's a great independent film. I've watched it a number of times. I might even watch it again at some point. But I will quite happily never hear Love is All Around, or at least the wet, wet, wet version, ever again. It's a perfectly fine song, but I am sick to the fucking eye teeth of it. Still from 1994. The best thing to come out of Love is All Around, and while I don't think it is a great movie, the uh, the cover of it in Love Actually is legitimately funny. Christmas is all around me And so the feeling grows It's written And I think that is one of the best jokes in the film. The other songs to make note of, obviously, Take That, Everything Changes, or because that is a big old song. But the one that I absolutely adore in all of this is Prince, the most beautiful girl in the world. Prince got to the top of the charts in our timeline. So thrilled about that. Not just top of the charts, but with the song that is essentially the under-consultation canon Luke and Jet theme. (laughs) <laughs> yeah no i absolutely love uh this song i mean I'm, I'm a big prince guy prince is a fascinating fascinating individual because uh, i think most people know at this point he his entire house was wired for sound if he were as kevin smith put it if he was sat on the can and wanted to re-record purple rain he could do he could just press a button and he could start doing it but he also just made songs with no intention of ever releasing them and then would oftentimes make music videos for those songs. He would make it, put it in a vault, and that would be the end of it. And once he passed away, his estate was just like, there is money to be made from this. And I think it's next month or in a couple of months' time, we're getting a new Prince album that is just featured all unreleased material. There's part of me that does not want to hear it because he put it in a vault for a reason, but there's also a part of me that's just like, ooh, new Prince music. I do want to hear that. I'm kind of going back to the Kurt Cobain journal thing of like, I don't want anyone to read this. I don't know that Prince ever said, I don't want any of this released, because if he didn't want any of it ever released, he could have burned it. Well, yeah, that's very true. He just put it in a vault. Like, it's not not like he hated it. It's just that he was just like, that was just a fun little weekend project for me. Yeah, I I mean, you mentioned the Kevin Smith thing. Uh, It's well worth checking out the Kevin Smith and Prince story. Because, yeah, Kevin Smith went out there because um, they wanted to license Most Beautiful Girl in the World uh, for Jane Silent Bob Strikes Back. He used Bon Jovi in the end. Yeah, but I've actually seen a bootleg work print of Jane Silent Bob Strikes Back, and you can tell that that is what it was shot for because Mm. they use it in the Temp soundtrack. Yeah. It fits. It makes sense. But, yes, we went out and he filmed this entire long documentary about a new album the Prince was releasing, and there was, like, hours and hours of footage 
like it was edited and everything. It was finished. Yep. And then it just got put in the vault. So I'm looking forward to hearing this new album, unless I see a compelling reason that it should never have been released. But the fact is, this isn't even like kind of the three tools and taking a John Lennon demo. And I say demo because he had kind of finished the song anyway. And then just like dubbing in stuff afterwards. But Prince finished and mixed this stuff. We're probably not even hearing a contemporary producer's mix of it. We're hearing what Prince finished. Yeah. The only thing that gives me pause is just like he didn't, Prince didn't want his stuff up on YouTube and he didn't want it up on Spotify. The second he dies, it was up on YouTube. It was up on Spotify. The Prince Estate just like released out into the world. Mm. I don't know. Like there's, there's things like that is what is kind of what gives me sort of like the heebie-jeebies a little bit. Uh, but you know, I, I'll, I'll put it this way: I'm probably going to listen to it on Spotify or on YouTube. Spotify, no doubt. <laughs> exactly. Like I'll probably I'll check it out on Spotify. You know, so I'm I'm the hypocrite in all of this. But uh, yeah, I, I do love this song uh, and I do love Prince. And actually, like, um, did you see the video that came out a few weeks ago at the time of this recording of uh, While My Guitar Gently Weeps mm. and the guitar solo? That, oh my God, what a guitar solo. I've loved that solo for a while because that was from when George Harrison was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and it was an all-star band. You had former members of the Travelling Wilburys there, Tom Petty, Jeff Lynne. You had Danny Harrison on acoustic guitar. Danny is apparently a lovely guy, but seeing him on stage, particularly with the other Wilburys and stuff like that, I'm just like, wow, you look so much like your dad. It's kind of terrifying. <laughs> but yeah, Prince is off to the side during most of this song. And then just it comes to the final guitar solo and he just kind of wanders on like like kind of some like eloquently dressed hobo with a guitar <laughs> and just wails out this solo. And yeah, this new director's cut of that segment. And it's absolutely beautiful and my favorite bit about the entire thing is the end of the solo he takes the guitar off and throws it into the air and it fucking disappears oh mate well it went back to its home planet yeah <laughs> it's like i can achieve nothing more in this mortal realm anymore after that solo goodbye honestly it literally it basically just goes i have to go now my planet needs me <laughs> just like off it pops i want to believe there was someone on wires above the stage just going i'm ready <laughs> and catch <laughs> There was a few other notable songs as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. But those are the ones that I wanted to make reference to. Doop. I'm mentioning that just because it means you've got to put a clip in. <laughs> and that means I've earwormed people, which brings me some joy. The big one that I want to mention, though, Stiltskin Inside, a song I hoped we would actually cover as part of the main timeline because this song fucks. This is a slapper of a song. It's by the Scottish rock band Stiltskin, but it was originally written for a Levi Jeans commercial. We get that again in our timeline, I think, because I'm pretty sure, well, I mean, we'll certainly cover it at some point. We'll get Babylon Zoo, Spaceman, which is like, yeah, it was using the Levi commercial and that made it dead popular in the charts. I mean, in, in the case of this one, the band Stiltskin, it's a bit of a Foo Fighters situation. Because on the original version of this song that was used in the adverts, all of the instruments were played by the person who wrote the song, a guy called Peter Lawler. And the vocals were provided by Ray Wilson, who was going to soon find further fame as the replacement for Phil Collins when he left Genesis. It was released as a single on the 25th of April, and it only spent a week at the top of the charts from the 14th to the 21st of May. But for me, this song is just synonymous with this time period, both for the adverts, but also because even though it's a relatively new song, it was on that double tape set that I love, the best rock album in the world ever. 
And I genuinely think it earned its place there because it's just an it's an epic track and it sits alongside like Dire Straits and Lenny Kravitz and all these other like kind of notable big artists on this album and doesn't sound a jot out of place. Mm. Plus the advert was pretty cool. Levi's adverts were cool in the 90s. I miss cool adverts because they also did generate music as you mentioned Babylon Zoo, Spaceman, also Guinness adverts. Yeah. Doing this podcast is a lot of fun anyway, but when it comes to doing the editing and I get to go through the adverts portions, there is a lot of me that's just like, wow, this advert is so good. This advert's great. I'd forgotten about this advert. Like, they were adverts that were as memorable as the shows they were, you know, in between. Also, in the period of time in between uh, these series, a couple of album releases that I wanted to make note of. Nine Inch Nails, The Downward Spiral, uh, gets released in March. The Offspring Smash gets released in April. Weezer's Blue Album, one of my favorite albums, which I would argue is a perfect 10-track album, gets released in May. But also April 25th, big one for the UK, Blur's Park Life gets released. I don't know if I think Park Life is a perfect album, but it is a great, great album. It's probably my favorite Blur album. I don't think there are really any tracks on it I would skip it goes all over the place yeah bank holiday sounds nothing like boys and girls no and until the end Mm -hmm. which i i love that's a luscious sounding song and it made me an instant fan of blur and then the great escape came out and i'm like "Mm." difficult second album it wasn't even their second album that's the worst (laughs) bit of it it's the difficult follow-up album the difficult follow-up yeah better better way to put it because country house yeah Great. That was another barnstormer. That's why that came out as a single, because they were like, oh, this will sell as much as Park Life. And they were right, because it was very similar. It wasn't an entirely serious song. Yeah. Blur is a, a band with a bit of a spotty track record for me. Like, I know you've made the argument, like, are you Blur or Oasis? I, I think I'm probably more Blur, but they haven't got like a great track record of albums. Like, Park Life is a great album, but yeah, everything after that, it's not not always great. Like, even, like, you know, Song 2 is a brilliant song, but it's not on a brilliant album. No. Some TV notes to give you. Uh, I think you'll enjoy some of these. Do you know what what made its return after a seven-year hiatus in March? Nope. Play your cards right. Return to our TV screens once again with Bruce Forsyth as its host. I mean, we all like a bit of a Brucey bonus, and, of course, the standard, nice to see you, to see you. Nice. (laughs) A couple of other ones I wanted to make note of, though. In April, we got the debut of Frasier here in the UK on Channel 4. Uh, the Simpsons' 100th episode aired on Sky 1 in May. Uh, in September, BBC aired the UK premiere of T2 Judgment Day. Groundbreaking special effects now on BBC One in a high-tech and violent struggle to save the human race. The countdown's complete. It's Judgment Day. But the one that I absolutely love, because this is very much like... 90s television news. April 2nd, Chris Evans opens the Easter Sunday edition of Don't Forget Your Toothbrush with the words, it's that time of year again when we remember Jesus was crucified, and it's that time of the week when we remember that Spurs probably have been too. The comments attracted a complaint to the British Standards Commission, which was subsequently upheld by the watchdog. Oh, fuck off. (laughs) Just, just fuck off with that. I mean, really. I know. Because the worst thing is, It's a really good joke as well. Chris Evans was this like anarchic presenter of the 90s. I love when he had Sean Ryder from the Happy Mondays on to TFI Friday. Uh, Now, we've talked before on the radio and uh, 
You know that you swear a lot, don't you? You are aware of that. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, you don't mean to, do you? No, no, it's all Chris. It's just the way it happens, you know. It's you just your lingo. That's the way it is. Yeah. Now, you've read string spot. It's king, 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 king. Yeah, that's all right. You see, that's okay. Well, Sean, Sean has promised tonight to do his best, haven't you, Sean? Yeah. I am. Well, look, I, 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 let me tell you this. If you don't swear tonight, I'll give you my shoes. That's good. All right. <laughs> what have you got? What have you got? to ask yourself is, would you like these shoes? Uh, I find somewhere to wear them. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on. And Patrick Cox, man, and Patrick's a fucking good. Uh... <laughs> That was complete. That's, uh, it Sean, does Patrick make good John. shoes, man. I'm the cheaper than feeler. <laughs> and the next time Sean, Sean Ryder was banned from any channel, like live Channel 4 program after that. And they had an episode of TFI Fridays that he was on. And they had to prove that it was pre-recorded. And like, so like Chris Evans is throwing to this pre-recorded Sean Ryder being like, Sean, you're not allowed to be on the show live. How can we tell that you're pre-recorded? And he walks outside, he opens the doors, and he goes, because it's fucking daylight outside. <laughs> oh, God. Well, Doctor, it's like this. I made a clean break with my past life, throwing over the bar stools of Boston for a fresh start here in Seattle. But it seems my search for a new life has offered up a set of its own problems. The living father. Hey, you're going to have to run an extension cord over here so I can plug in the vibrating part. His dog, Eddie. And to cap it all, the home care worker is sidekick. You're a florist. Frasier, starting next Wednesday at 10 on 4. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Before Nintendo came out with Super Metroid, we wanted to make sure it was the most intense Metroid battle ever. So we thought we'd see how Killer here would fare against it. Ready, boy? Ready, boy? 
That's 24 megs worth of weapons, worlds, and weirdos old killer's up against. Nintendo's biggest game ever. But he's a big boy. He can handle it. Well, let's see how he did. Ship it! Super Metroid, only on the Super NES. Before last week's Don't Forget Your Toothbrush, the studio audience felt like this. But how did they feel after watching one hour of Sevens at his most live and dangerous? Brilliant, great. Thoroughly enjoyed that. Brilliant, great. Excellent. Oh my God, it was brilliant. Very good, excellent. Coming again. It's a bit ginger for my liking. Excellent show. Superb. Brilliant. Chris. Don't forget your two tomorrow at ten on four. Right, okay, we're here to talk about some video game stuff. We're going to get into the magazines in just a second as well. Here are some of the notable releases in between uh, our series here. So Super Metroid, which we did talk a little bit about in the uh, in episode 26 at the end of series three. Uh, Bubsy 2. Uh, gets released in this period of time if you really enjoyed Bubsy the Bobcat. Perhaps bigger releases though, Darkstalkers, King of Fighters, Mother 2, Need for Speed on the 3DO. And just before we get into episode one of series four, Mortal Kombat 2 gets released on the home systems. And that's actually, you know, it's going to be our first challenge that we get in episode one of series four. It doesn't just get released for the home systems because on the snares, there's no brown sweat. Yep. It's got full blood this time round. But yeah, like uh, Wing Commander 3 is the game. I mean, obviously there's Mother 2 in that list and King of Fires and Darkstalkers, but man, Wing Commander 3. When like that is when the, the series went to another level. That's because we got actors in, we got digitized actors of Mark Hamill and Biff from Back to the Future and Malcolm McDowell. And it was, you know, like him making this whole like world and stuff. And I think like Wing Commander 3 is quite easy to make fun of but man you know it, it is it's revolutionary it's groundbreaking for its time i do love how you're listing the actors and you're like mark hamill malcolm mcdowell biff <laughs> it's biff from back to the future that's the actor's name now technically i have five issues of games master magazine to cover for this time period we're going to go through them very briefly just picking up a few news articles and then going back because mm, some interviews we got some interviews relevant to Games Master, in, oh, yeah, relevant to have. the TV series in there. First up from the May issue, we've got a lot of confusion regarding Sega because we've got an article on Codename Mars, mm-hmm. which will slot into the cartridge port of the Mega Drive just like the Master System adapter and will provide two 32-bit RISC chips, a video processor, and extra RAM. Yeah, the fabled 32X. A nice idea. Like, that is Tom Kalinske trying to extend the lifespan of the Mega Drive. Smartly so, I would also argue. Well, Andrew Wright of Sega UK says, this will give the likes of the 3DO and Sony's PS-X a run for its money. Will it, Bart? Yeah. Will it really? Yeah, well, I mean, you, you know, appreciate the fact that he's trying there. And at the time, they thought that this was going to, like, give the Mega Drive another five years on, on the shelf. 
as it turns out, the 32X, we get like, I don't know, a handful of games made for it. Like it's not, we do get into double digits, but it's not massively into double digits of the games that the 32X actually gets. And even then, we got some games that were 32X and Mega CD exclusive. So you had to have both of the attachments to play a Mega CD 32X game. Speaking of the Mega CD, then there's a box out because, of course, the existence of the Mega 32, as it's called here, does raise some interesting questions, such as where does this leave the Mega CD? And they say that the Mega Drive 32 add-on will be totally compatible with the Mega CD, enabling Sega CD games to take full advantage of the new 32-bit architecture. The potential of a 32-bit Mega CD system is awesome, with all the benefits that the cartridge games receive, plus the massive storage provided by CD. As a result, it's likely that some CD games will come out in two different versions in the future, namely the 16-bit and the 32-bit versions compatible with the new add-on hardware. I mean, that is what happened and caused massive market confusion. Yeah. I mean, the box art looks different, sure. But for buying a present for little Jimmy's birthday... mm. As I said, I appreciate what Sega were trying with the Mega CD and the 32X. And like on paper, it totally makes sense. I don't think I've ever asked you like what you you sort of think about this about you know Sega wanted to do, they were working on the Saturn, but Tom Kalinsky's point was just like why would we release a new console? The Mega Drive still or the, you know the Genesis and the Saturn is doing really good numbers. Let's just release add-ons for it that expand its shelf like expand its shelf life. Sort of which side of the fence do you fall on? In theory, I'm on the side of extending the life. In practice, it didn't work. Yeah, well, yeah, it didn't work because technologically. The advances weren't there. Give the PlayStation a run for its money. You're having a laugh, mate. You couldn't even give your own 32-bit machine a run for its money. In theory, it's a good idea, but it didn't work. And I don't think it's ever really worked. It's very much an idea from... I mean, Tom Kalinske's a toy guy. Like, he came from the world of toys. And that's how you... Like, Barbie stays on the shelf because you release new extensions for Barbie. You release new uh, playhouses for Barbie. You release new cars for Barbie. And he had the same thing with He-Man. He-Man stayed on the shelves because like, well, we release a new line of He-Man figures and that extends the life of it. So like, it's a very much a someone who has come from Mattel, their idea of how to kind of, you know, making this a toy. However, it's like, as you said, because it's technology and the technology that is you're competing against has far outreached what you're doing. It just does not work. Unfortunately, your 16-bit base thing is not giving the, the the CD enough. It's not giving the 32X enough. And the PlayStation is coming out, and it's just like leaps and bounds ahead of what you're doing. With the 32X, they quite literally gave the Mega Drive a new hat. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. But she's got a new hat. One last bit from this article. There is the box out of What About the Saturn? And it says the announcement of the Mega 32 raises the question, what's happening to the much-vaunted Saturn, the 32-bit console that everyone was expecting Sega to release this year? The cynics are claiming that the Saturn has gone back to the drawing board after Sega felt threatened by the specifications of Sony's hotly anticipated PS-X multimedia machine. Everyone knows that Sony can handle themselves in a fight in the electronic media circus, so it's no surprise that Sega have taken the Japanese electronic giant's entry into the games market seriously. Andrew Wright again offers the following explanation. The Saturn specifications aren't even nailed down yet. There are 2 million Mega Drive owners out there, and by launching the Mega 32, we're giving them the opportunity to upgrade to 32-bit technology at a very reasonable price. The Saturn will be positioned for a totally different market, which will be concentrating more on CD-based multimedia facilities. We won't be seeing the Saturn until the end of 1995. Oh. 
I mean, that's yeah, that's that's more true, isn't it, for the UK? No, yeah, I suppose you, you can give them the benefit of the doubt on that one. But saying that the specifications for the Saturn aren't nailed down in May, mm, that's not true. Yeah, well, I mean, like there was so much like turmoil within Sega of Japan about the Saturn and about like, you know, they they were like, you know, they weren't nailing anything down. And it's why developers found it very hard to make games for the Saturn. Yeah, I, I, I maybe I kind of believe it because I know that like uh, from what I have read from sort of various um, sources and stuff, the production of the Saturn was a nightmare really really tough and no one really knew what it was or what it could do although interesting to note this news article is accompanied by an artist illustration of a concept of the saturn that's pretty much bang on that is spot on i mean i'm looking at it right next to one now and i'm like yep that's the saturn yep pretty much they've even got the slightly weird gray color right elsewhere nintendo have announced the details of the first game for their much anticipated project reality system developed by rare the game is called Killer Instinct. Described by Nintendo as a futuristic 3D fighting game, which we reckon implies a Virtua Fighter type beat em up. It will be previewed at the CES in June and is scheduled to hit the arcades around the end of 94, with a version for the Project Reality Home System due at the end of 1995. Which is interesting because we get Killer Instinct on the SNES. We do, and I don't like it on the SNES, and <laughs> to be fair, I just don't get on with Killer Instinct. There are fighting fans out there that will probably hate me for saying that, but I just don't, I just never clicked with it. If you can't do the combos, which I can't, uh, I think that's why I've never really gotten on with Killer Instinct much either. But like my mate Wilf, um, when I used to go to Union Pompey, he absolutely loved Killer Instinct because he had a handful of characters that he could do ultra combos with, and he just had the mind for it. And I just, I never had the mind for Killer Instinct. I wish I did get on with it because particularly the arcade version, the arcade version and indeed the later versions look great. The home ports on the SNES and the Nintendo 64, mm, yeah, 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 less so. Yeah. Also, just lastly of note, before I skip on to the next magazine, uh, Samsung and Goldstar have announced they're planning to make 3DOs. I'm sure that will go great. <laughs> Quick note from the June issue is that there's rumours that Nintendo are releasing a 32-bit machine before the much-talked-about Project Reality. And apparently this comes weeks after Sega announced the Mega 32 to precede the release of their own Saturn. Nintendo's new unit, known as Virtual Reality, will come as a hardware add-on which plugs straight into the SNES, giving it full 32-bit capabilities. So that's the that's the virtual boy. It could be, although here they're talking about it as an add-on rather than a standalone console. The virtual boy is a 32-bit machine. Doesn't fucking look like it, but it is a 32-bit machine. So I guess it must be the virtual boy that like maybe there was some crossed wires that they heard it was going to be an add-on, maybe they thought well because the 32X is an add-on it will also be an add-on as opposed to it just being its own system. I mean, when was the Virtual Boy released? Uh, 95. So, 
this could be it because they say at the end the virtual reality should be going on sale next january at a price of around 129 pounds well that didn't happen but games are expected to cost a recession-friendly £30. Now, Virtual Boy games were relatively cheap because they were priced more in the Game Boy mark. So yeah, I think what we've got here is uh, taking one and one and making three because they're going, oh, well, if they're working on something 32, then clearly that's meant to be a stopgap. Yeah. Fun fact about the Virtual Boy, it had a Waterworld game. See, I've softened on Waterworld as a film. I think we've discussed it before, but a Waterworld game just leaves me going, nah. We're just like, uh, I think some people hold that up as just like the perfect example to put onto the Virtual Boy. This film that was massively hyped and not many people liked on a system that was massively overhyped and not many people liked. Also, just as a last note, Philips was set to unveil a new sexy look CDI to compete more directly with the 3DO, which is due to launch in the UK very soon. That worked out well for both of them. Mm -hmm. We move on to July, and this is where things start to get a little bit interesting because things are starting to firm up in the 32-bit war. Games Master can exclusively reveal the first picture of Sony's awesome-looking PS-X, now officially dubbed the PlayStation. This is tipped to be the most powerful machine available when it arrives in Japan in November. It's expected to get an official release in the UK in September 95, and rumours suggest that the price will be an amazing 200 to 250 pounds. Incredible. Meanwhile, Sega has given us a glimpse of their Mega Drive 32-bit add-on, which should hit the streets in time for Christmas at around £150. Sega of Japan is working on about 12 Mega Drive 32 titles, six of which should get proper European releases at the same time as the launch of the add-on. But that's not all. Sega have also shown a nearly complete Saturn console at the Tokyo Toy Fair last month. The Saturn will launch in November in Japan, and it should be backed up with top titles like Virtua Fighter, Clockwork Knight, Daytona USA, and a souped-up Mystery Mansion. It's not likely to get a European release until 1995, with an expected price tag of around £400. And that is why the PlayStation won. Not only was it the much better console, dude, it was so much cheaper. But there's the three consoles, and that's exactly what we got. I'm so looking forward to when we get that uh, the PlayStation feature, because we can do like a big, deep dive there. That's going to be so cool. That's going to be a chonky episode. Oh, that's going to be a meaty one. But just below this, what could possibly be more exciting than these details on these 32-bit monsters? Well, it could be news on the new host of Games Master, meet the new boss, same as the old boss, Dominic Diamond returns to host the next series of Games Master, the best game show in the universe, which will hit your screens in September. Jane Hewland of Hewland International, the producers of the show, explained the surprise move. We're subtitling the show back to basics. We want to get into more detail about the games, which means longer reviews, news and features. Dominic is a gaming expert, so we're very excited about getting him back. Dexter Fletcher was a great performer and did a very good job when the show was heavily orientated towards challenges, but we want to get back to a serious look at games. Sounds great, and we can't wait to meet up with the Diamond Geezer again. Really, because a few months ago, you were basically taking the piss out of him and calling him Danny Curley fat. I was going to say, I'm going to hope that he hasn't been reading the magazine. As I said at the time, there could be ribs here, you know, it could be bants. I kind of hope it was. But now we're in August, the CES has been and gone, and boy, we're getting a lot of exciting looks at a lot of things. And leading the network section is Nintendo Steel the Show. Mm-hmm. This is the June CES in Chicago, where they unveil two killer games 
that are going to see them through the rest of the year. We've got Donkey Kong Country and Uni Rally. <laughs> okay, what, what, what? 50% of that is correct. And like, you remember, like, we were talking about the winter CES and Games Master's coverage of it, which is just that, like, Stunt Racer FX is like the big game. Look at it, it's a 3D racer, it's this, it's that. When actually, in reality, Donkey Kong Country is the game that Nintendo are kind of most excited about because it's a 2D platformer. But like Games Master at that period of time was just like, we don't want to see a 2D platformer. Everyone's doing 2D platformers. The Stunt Racer FX is way more interesting. It's more like this is what the future of gaming is. By the summer CES, and I talked about this when we you know, did the episode way back when, the big presentation, they had this big jungle setting. They came out in safari outfits. They shoot a hedgehog because that's what they're currently hunting. It's this huge, big thing. And like, while Sega are arguing over the Saturn and the 32X and this and that, and like the future of hardware, Nintendo go to this show and be like, we're releasing a fucking 2D game. Look how awesome it looks. And it's so, so good. But you you disparaged Uni Rally just then. Yeah, I'll, I'll disparage it. It's not as good as Donkey Kong Country. But legitimately, it was one of the two big games they were leading with at CES. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying. I'm talking about like how like you know <laughs> when you look back at sort of the pantheon of like classic SNES titles. I would actually argue that I think Uni Rally or Uni Racers, as it was called here, is a little bit underrated and has actually aged far better than some things, including Donkey Kong Country has. Mm -hmm. But also exciting, and this will be a particular interest to Cliff, Project Reality has become the Nintendo Ultra 64. Nintendo shocked the industry by being first to reveal their next generation system at Chicago's CES with two fully playable games. Games Master's editor Tim Tucker saw it in action as it was revealed to selected special industry geezers for the first time. It's the best thing ever, says Tim. I played two practically complete games, Killer Instinct and Cruise in USA. Killer Instinct is the most awesome side-on beat-em-up yet to appear, including staggering rendered sprites and backgrounds and some stunning scaling effects. The game plays like a cross between Street Fighter 2 and Mortal Kombat 2, but it's more violent, better looking and more flexible than both, with up to 13 hit combos available with just three hits. I think he's had too much sugar. Yeah, or maybe you meant to say moves. Yeah. Cruising USA is a polygon-rendered racing game in the Ridge Racer Daytona mold, and the arcade version I played features a sitting car with the best motion control I've ever experienced. Both games are destined for the arcade soon, but Nintendo stressed the Ultra 64 home version out at the end of next year will be identical. Oh, will it now? Nintendo were putting the cart before the horse on this one. Some miles mm -hmm. before the horse. Yeah, you look back at this time and what they were saying that the Ultra 64 was going to look like, it did not. No. Elsewhere at CES, we got the first look at Dark Forces, aka Doom in Space, 3DO Street Fighter 2, which was going to be the most arcade perfect port at the time, and it actually kind of was. Sega were talking about Sonic 3 and Sonic and & Knuckles. The PC was bigging up Doom 2, Hell on Earth. Oh. And the Atari Jaguar was getting in on Alien vs. Predator. Still fucking touting Alien vs. Predator. Like, we had that as a preview in Series 3, right? And then you, like, mentioned a load of games there that are... These are sort of future titles, like Sonic & Knuckles, Doom 2, it's Killer Instinct, it's Donkey Kong Country. And there's like the Atari Jaguar is still there being like, yeah, but AVP, it's, it's fucking out, mate. I mean, it's been out for a while now. Moving on to the last magazine in the gap, 
This is a big one in September. The 3DO is getting its official launch in the UK and it's going on tour. It's touring throughout July, August, September and October. It's going all over the country. Swanage <laughs> to Dartmouth to Peterborough to Woburn Safari Park. I mean, it's hitting all the big names. Oh, yeah. I mean, it is actually. It's going to a lot of big festivals in these areas. It's going to Thorpe Park. It's going to Chessington World of Adventure. It's actually on the 24th to the 29th of October. It was in my stomping grounds. It was at the Fairfield Halls in Croydon. Wow. I mean, I didn't live here then, but that's still kind of exciting. I should see if I can get a blue plaque on the wall or something. That'll be cool. But yeah, it goes on sale in the UK. It's going to cost £399.95. Yeesh. And it comes with the game Total Eclipse, which got 73% when reviewed in Games Master. Hmm. But in order to put it about a bit, Panasonic have got a 45-foot truck that opens out into the shape of a giant 3DO, and that's what's going on tour. It will be visiting 30 venues between now and Christmas. All you need to do to get your hands on a free go is wander up, smile, and take the time card that they'll be handing out. Then nip home, change your jumper and do it again then get a false mustache and so on and so forth they also mentioned games master is coming back to the future entertainment show not for another live episode sadly no sadly not they mentioned something we will be hearing about on the tv show which is games master jacking into the net <gasps> yes right yeah we get that like sort of episode three or four i think is uh, it's about like the games master fandom yeah so we'll we'll have more on that later but a last bit of news Directly related to the TV show, Games Master Goes to Hell. Yes, it does. Straight down, one might say. It's starting to sound like a movie series now, isn't it? The new series of Games Master is going to be set in, wait for it, hell. Although they could have saved on the cost of a set by filming it at Les's house. Hewland International, the people who make the show, are at this very moment surveying the murky depths of the underworld to get the atmosphere just right for the new series. Bet you didn't know there was a connection between Baldy GM and old Lucifer himself, did you? You can be sure that as soon as the final details are finalised, we'll overwhelm you with information. As a location has yet to be chosen, Hewland are keeping tight-lipped. But by next month, there should be some exciting development afoot in the world of Games Master. I mean, well, they went back to the same church where they'd filmed series one and where they would actually film two further series. So there we go. Whoop-de-doo. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was some really good news there. And a lot very exciting. A lot for us to look forward to in series four. But I know that there's also some interviews in those magazines as well. There is. Now, something that you would expect, given he maintained a column in this very esteemed periodical, Dominic Diamond is spoken to. but. In the May 1994 issue of Games Master magazine, we get a one-page feature called At Home with the Games Master. I didn't think that there would be an interview with Patrick Moore in all of this, which is a, you know, very much sort of silly on my part because of course they would have done an interview with him at some point. But when you told me that this was in the magazine, I was like instantly like, "Ooh, I definitely want to hear what he had to say." Asteroids are going to start falling on our heads very soon or so we see in the papers. We've been a bit worried, so we decided to send Allison on a trip to consult the Games Master. In his infinite wisdom, surely he'll be able to tell us whether or not we ought to be going around with metal hats on. Why ask the Games Master, you say? Well, the Games Master has an alter ego, Patrick Moore, who presents the sky at night and has been doing so for 40 years. And he has an enormous telescope in his back garden. Diamondism, mm -hmm. they're back. <laughs> Actually, I'm not too certain I want to find out that I'm about to be flattened by a huge ball of rock, so I decide to kick off with some tamer questions, such as how he got the job as the Games Master. 
well, you know, they asked me to do it and I thought it sounded rather fun. That's it. That's, that's it. That, that, that's the answer. Yep. It turns out the Games Master is a bit coy about his gaming prowess and prefers to give little away. It's because he doesn't play games, you <laughs> journalist. Yeah, there's an insult. That's a good way to write it, though. In terms of basically, you can't just go out and then be like, oh, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but Patrick Moore doesn't give a shit <laughs> about games and has no idea what he's talking about. Instead, he's like, no, no, he's coy about his gaming knowledge. Hmm. I did manage to beat the computer at chess the other day, he ponders, although does add, why do you look so surprised? What other hidden depths are there to this great brain, I wonder? Well, I look at the stars here and there, I've written a few books, and I've been on telly once or twice. I've been playing the xylophone for a long time, too. (laughs) Said no one ever. Blimey, is there anything he can't do? He even bowls for his local cricket team. Take a look in the study. At the moment, I'm rewriting my Atlas of the Universe, which first came out over 20 years ago. I thought it was time for a complete overhaul. I'm turning into Chumley Warner from Harry Enfield. I don't quite know why. And he can fly as well, which is something that comes up when we get to cover Independence Day UK down the timeline, which I'm still very excited to do. Time to pop the question about asteroids. Does Damocles, the huge asteroid heading for Jupiter, pose any real threat to us? This gets the Games Master talking. Well, asteroids do tend to wander around the solar system and they can come quite close to us. One brushed past just the other day at less than 150,000 miles, and that's rather close. We can occasionally be hit. There's a large meteorite crater in Arizona, for example, which is nearly a mile wide. There's a theory that about 65 million years ago, there was a big asteroid impact which caused so much dust and such a great change in the climate that the dinosaurs died out. I'm not very sold on the idea myself, but this is a perfectly serious theory. We could be hit by an asteroid, but the chances are extremely slight you are far more likely to be run over by a bus. Oh well, at least some things in life are certain, and that includes life on other planets. Look at it this way. Our sun is one of 100,000 million stars in our galaxy alone. We know there are 1,000 million galaxies, so the total number of stars which actually exist is staggeringly great. I refuse to believe that our own perfectly ordinary, unimportant sun is the only one to have an inhabited planet in orbit about it. Only one question remains in the great scheme of things, and that's whether or not the Games Master is going into early retirement or whether he'll be starring in another series of Games Master. Oh, if they ask me, I'll do it. That's it. That's it. That's the story. I was going to say, we got basically two questions there uh, that were relevant to our interests. And then there was like, oh, God, we've got to ask him about asteroids, I guess, because that's the only thing that we'll talk about. But there's pictures of him resting his head on his shoulder, his head on his hands, playing with a telescope, sat at a beautiful old-fashioned typewriter, and playing the xylophone. (laughs) With the caption, on his days off, the Games Master wears quite trendy shirts. There you go. <laughs> I love that. That was a perfectly lovely little interview. Yeah. Well, I mean, what's also great about that as well is because they, they're talking about asteroids there and asteroids are going to become like a big thing in Hollywood as well in the next couple of years because there were these sorts of news stories that be like, there's an asteroid that's going to hit the Earth. Do you remember the asteroid that hit the Earth 65 million years ago and wiped out the dinosaurs? And that got Hollywood writers thinking to the point where we got two asteroid-based movies released basically within a month of each other. Uh, one was a Steven Tyler song vehicle, and the other one was actually kind of a good movie. Yeah, I mean, I, I would go to bat for both of them. Armageddon is dumb as a bag of spanners, and I love it for it. But now, here's the daddy, the diamond geezer himself. That's their caption, not mine. Sorry, Don. This was in the August issue and the September issue because it was a two-parter. Tim caught up with Dom at a glitzy party in Chicago where the wild Caledonian was filming with the Games Master crew. Here we present part one of the interview covering all things stirringly cyberpunk. 
And the first question asks Dom, what does he think of the quality of the games at the show? And he says, I think the problem is that the people are getting too wrapped up in the way things look. You know, FMV, digitise this and digitise that. When all you have to do is look at Miss Pac-Man on the Game Boy, which for me is the best release this year. And it's a concept that's what, 10 years old? You see, people are forgetting about gameplay. It's only games like Micro Machines that turn me on. Yes, Dominic Diamond. Knew we were kindred spirits. He goes on to say, another problem is all this new technology, Project Reality and Saturn and whatever. They will all be quite expensive and they'll get a lot of bad press at the start because the games won't be that good. If that happens, we'll all just be sat around watching CDTV, you know? When asked about traditional platformers and beat-em-ups and whether they've reached their zenith, Dom says, oh yes, completely. There is nothing more boring than a beat-em-up. It doesn't matter which one it is, Street Fighter 2, Mortal Kombat, perform a flying kick and you'll win regardless. And it's the same with platform games. I've yet to play a platform game that I haven't completed in under four hours. It isn't all bad, though. Uniracer on the SNES is great. (laughs) It looks crap, but it's fantastic, and it's good to see people do things a little bit differently. There are certain genres that will never die, and I am being rather hypocritical because all football games are the same, more or less, but I could play them forever. Bearing that in mind, what has been the highlight of CES for you? Or I'd have to say it's the 3DO stuff. Despite reports that it hasn't taken off in the US, you just have to look at FIFA and Way of the Warrior. It's a class above the rest. I mean, there was a lot of brilliant stuff here, Mortal Kombat 2 and Donkey Kong Country, but they aren't a patch on the 3DO stuff. I like Dominic. He's a friend to you and I. Me for my, like, focus on the gameplay. I don't give a shit how it looks. And you for his love of the 3DO. And we'll split the difference on Uni Rally and I won't tell him. <laughs> Moving on to part two in the September issue, we now look to talk to him about his return to Games Master. Now, this is the interesting bit. So, Dom, what about coming back to Games Master? Have you got a fresh approach? Yeah, it's good to have a year away from it. I'm a lot better now, having done three live radio shows a week and really improved my skills. And in the show, there'll be more emphasis on the features, which will improve it no end. We've talked about different ways to present the review section, plus there'll be slightly less time spent on the challenges. We always tried really hard on Games Master to make humour the most important thing. We did that for the first two series. But in the last series, for some bizarre reason, the humour was missing, Whereas this series is going to be hysterical. That's a big claim. Oh, he's not wrong, though. Like, the series three, when you think about it, it was a bit dry. Dexter wasn't a natural comedian and no one was writing zingers for him. So, again, this comes down to a production thing, I think. Exactly. But it wasn't designed to be a funny show. Like, Dexter Fletcher was designed to just be like, hello, here's a challenge. Play the challenge. Off you pop. Now, they do ask if there will be a return of the innuendos. And Dominic's like, well, no. There might be a few very sophisticated innuendos, but I think even I'd be stretched. I must have used them all by now, and I used to get into so much trouble with Channel 4, they didn't like them at all. The first two series were watched by people who didn't play video games, just because it was camp. It was funny, and hopefully we'll do the same again this time. What about the look of the show, seeing as the famous red jacket has been ditched? Yes, that was very nice of them, ditching my jacket on the first show, one of only two shows I watched last year. Never mind, though. When they approached, there were a number of conditions. I mean, the obvious one was money. But also what I now wear is essentially my choice. I cannot be forced to wear anything I'm not happy with. We know what we want and it will be much cooler. So you didn't really like the red jacket then? I hated the red jacket more than I hate Danny Bear. (laughs) Can you explain your dislike of Danny Bear? She's everything that's wrong in presenting on television in the UK. One of the problems I have is that you seem to have to have a certain look to do things. And she's a classic example of style over content, shall we say. And I hate her because of it. And you hate the jacket more. I hate the red jacket more. So Danny Bear in that red jacket, they really like going down this route. And to be honest, I'm entertained. 
So Danny Bear in that red jacket would be the ultimate nightmare. Well, no, that wouldn't be so bad because she would be looking really stupid and that would be okay. But the red jacket has gone. I said all along that it was a terrible idea and that I didn't want to do it. I'd have loved for Dominic to still be hosting when Danny Bear came on as the Celebrity Challenge in Series 3. So is there anything else you'd like to talk about? Oh yes, other TV shows. Every single TV show on terrestrial TV. I can't comment on Sky TV because I don't watch it. But Bad Influence, The Net, Movies, Games and Videos, all this stuff is the worst of the worst as far as TV is concerned. Video games coverage by other people is dull, patronising, insipid. It's completely and utterly devoid of any kind of wit or humour or irony. I mean, The Net, most of the stuff looks like Holiday 94. The wee girl who does the reviews, I think she's super cool. I know a lot of people get really annoyed with her, but I think she's brilliant. But then it cuts from her to somebody who looks like Judith Chalmers. It's like having your mum present something. I've never liked Bad Influence. That's hopeless. And movies, games and videos is the worst because of that guy who does the voiceover. I just can't hack him. I think that's unfair on uh, Bad Influence saying that it's patronising. Because I think Bad Influence actually spoke to its audience like they were adults. Yeah, it's worth noting that Dominic, uh, in addition to speaking to us before, he also did a print interview in the latest issue of Retro Gamer, where he does express some regret to how he referred to his contemporaries of the time, including all the ones listed here and Bad Influence. Mm -hmm. And so they end on this note. So you think the approach has been wrong in the past? Oh yes, completely. I mean, people try to compare video games to rock and roll, but if you remember, the best music show on TV was The Tube, because it was funny. Even Top of the Pops has moved that way now, getting Vic and Bob to host it. And video games are like that. You have got to be funny. I don't disagree with him. Don't disagree with that point. But there we have a two-part interview with Dominic Diamond, circa 1994, getting ready to shave off the hair, don the white suit, and go straight down. <laughs> and I think that is probably, that's going to do it for us. That is absolutely going to do it for us. And it's really cool to be able to read what Dominic Diamond said about returning to Games Master then. And if only we could talk to him about that now. If only. Ah. So what are we doing in seven days' time? Oh, we're talking to Dominic Diamond <laughs> about his decision to leave Games Master and return to it. I tell you what, Luke, that is a fortuitous piece of luck and no mistake. It really is. Remember that tweet you put out where he said he's doing no more interviews? Turns out we're not only the first, we're also going to be the last. Yeah, go us. That's also an immense amount of pressure on both. Oh, God, isn't it just? But yeah, that is going to be next week's episode. We're going to have one more stop on our road to Series 4, and it is going to be our interview with Dominic Diamond talking about leaving for Series 3, coming back for Series 4. And yeah, basically anything else that we're going to chat to him about, it's going to be a really, really good time. We, we haven't recorded it yet but I'm super looking forward to it. I'm definitely going to ask him about Danny Bear. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to get that in seven days' time. But you can get in touch with us on Twitter at underconsolepod, on Instagram at under.console, and you can send us an email feedback at underconsultation.com. Or if you fancy a little bit of real-time interaction, you want to join in with us, join in with our listeners, join in with other fans of Retro Gaming, Games Master, and Under Consultation, you can join our Discord, details of which are in the show notes or on our social media. And if you want to support this podcast monetarily, you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash underconsolepod, where you'll get access to UCP Extra, where we do basically the usual Under Consultation show, but about other things. We've done Finders Keepers, we've done Funhouse, done Nightmare, we've done all sorts of of show so go and check that out you also get access to under console nation our monthly community podcast 
And at the £5 level, you get next week's episode one week early and ad-free. At the £10 level, get a little bit extra. Ash, what does that entail? They get a bonus pack which has a Patreon-exclusive mug, Patreon-exclusive stickers and badges, retro trading cards, mighty morphing Power Rangers at the moment, retro sweeties and £5 off our under-consultation t-shirt which can be bought along with other mugs, badges and stickers at our website, underconsultation.com. And a shout out to those £10 backers, Xanderthal, William, Simon, Sean, Roberts, Rich, Nick, Misha, Matt, Joe, Jason, Jamie, Gordon, David Palmer, David Fisher, Colin, Cliff, Carol, Alexis, Adam Warrington, and Adam D. Thank you all so much. You all rule. We will see you in seven days' time when we are sitting down with the man himself, Dominic Diamond. And this time, there won't be a second person for me to introduce, so I won't bollocks up the intro and annoy him. Take care, everyone. Good night. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.